Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Absolute Return Podcast. On today's show, we welcome special guest Phil Back, CEO of Armada ETF Advisors. Phil has been innovating in the ETF industry for over 15 years. He has previously served as founder CEO of Exponential ETFs, an ETF issuer and sub-advisor acquired by Title ETF Services in 2020. Phil has also served as CIO at Signal Advisors, a venture-backed startup in Detroit and managing director at the New York Stock Exchange. On the show, Phil discusses characteristics of ETFs that make them a great tool for investors, some major innovations in ETFs over the past 15 years, the bull case for residential real estate, what is happening in the private REIT space, the major risk investors face in private REITs, and more. So with no further ado, here's our show on private versus public REIT investing with our Mata ETF CEO, Phil Back. Hey, Phil. Welcome to the show. Hope you're feeling warm out there in Detroit and Michigan. How are things these days? Doing good and definitely not feeling warm. It is cold as hell right now out here, but uh, but doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, excited to get into it. Uh, long track record in the market. Been focused on ETFs for a long time. One of the innovators, pioneers in the space. Prior to getting into all things real estate, ETFs, can you touch on a bit of your career trajectory or background uh, in capital markets for nearly the past 20 years? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we don't always choose our career path. You know, sometimes our career path chooses us. And, and I think that was the case with me. I landed in ETFs. I started off really, I started off my career as a trader and I did some, you know, just like momentum trading, scalping back when that was a thing. And uh, that was my first foray into the market. And I ended up um, doing some FX work on an FX desk overnight and was doing a little writing, kind of like a little this or that, you know, trying to find myself, trying to find my career footing when uh, ETF started to explode. And I was very lucky to land as an ETF startup at the time it was called XTF Asset Management. And um, I did a little bit there and, and jumped over to another similarly named but very different ETF startup called X Shares Advisors. And I was very lucky there to have a company that ultimately the company wasn't all that successful, but I had some some bosses that gave me kind of free reign to come up with ideas and work with people on different products. And in a short amount of time, we did a lot of really interesting things. We did uh, the first ever target date ETF, so mixed asset ETF. Uh, we did the first ever carbon credit fund called AirShares that came and went, but I was very proud of uh, you know the work we did and the structuring we did on that. That was very early. That was back in like 08 or so. We did a number of other funds. We had a number of ideas that you know, it's kind of a shame that over the years since have become monstrous successes in the ETF industry that we weren't really able to execute on. But, you know, that kind of gave me um, a little bit of uh, expertise and, and credibility as a product structure in the ETF industry. And I ended up uh, when the company, like I said, it didn't really work out. I ended up going to a company called Ridex in the uh, product management and exchange traded fund group. And, you know, that was really just another fantastic experience. There's so many people there that I worked with at Ridex that now are all over the industry, all over in all kinds of roles, just a number of very, very smart people there. And I was a product manager on ETFs, including some really interesting ones, 
uh, notably the equal weight ETF is one of them that came into play later when I uh, reversed, when I launched uh, the reverse cap ETF down the road. That was kind of like the seeds for that. But, you know, long story short, is I did a lot of ETF product stuff and capital market stuff. I joined the New York Stock Exchange in 2010, worked with ETF issuers and regulators and market makers and did a lot of market structure work uh, there. And then in 2016, I had a very pivotal year for me. I had a, uh, a pituitary tumor that was pressing up on on my um, on my brain. It required two surgeries, two brain surgeries, to get it out. And ultimately, it was it was obviously it was a terrifying scare. But you know, it worked out. Everything you know, it was it was very much uh, a dodge bullet, and everything worked out okay. And I've you know, I've had a clean bill of health ever since. But having that moment, having that like belly of the beast moment, where realize, you know, life can be taken away, life is short. And I mean, all the cliches that people say, they're cliches because they're because there's a lot of truth to them. And that was a moment in my life where a lot of things changed. And up until then, none of you guys would have ever heard of me. I didn't have a, a social presence. I didn't really, you know, I was just, uh, I was just some guy working at the exchange and, you know, upstairs in the office that nobody really knew. And when I came out of that experience, I had a very different approach to life. I had a very much, you know, the, the, it was very real to me that, you know, life is a finite amount of time and the things that you want to do, you just have to, you know, wake up and go do them. And, you know, I was in um, an unhappy marriage. I, I got divorced. Um, I was in a career path that, that was very fortunate to have, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Up until that point, I probably would have wanted to be an entrepreneur, thought I would have made a good one for the rest of my career while I sat in these corporate jobs for, for another three decades. But that really gave me the kick in the butt that I needed to go out and and make things happen. And and a number of other things, being more outspoken. And, you know, again, I don't really, you know, I have a little bit of a social presence these days. I don't really consider myself outspoken. I consider myself just calling it like I see it, you know, and, and let the chips fall where they may. Like, I'm not going to filter myself or be worried about what, you know, potential, you know, potential partners or, or other firms or what, what they're going to think. I'm just going to say what I think is the honest truth. And I'm not always right. I'm not always, you know, sometimes I, I fall into something that, that resonates. Sometimes I don't, but it's really just a question of, of being um, honest and, and out there and not hiding or, or filtering, you know, what I'm saying. So all of that changed uh, very suddenly around 2016. And um, at the time I was, you know, like I said, I, was, I decided, okay, I'm going to go do something entrepreneurial. I had two business opportunities. One was a hedge fund uh, that used proprietary customer satisfaction data, which I wanted to convert into an ETF. And the other was some IP around non-transparent ETFs, non-transparent active ETFs, which at the time were still had not yet been approved by the SEC. It's kind of weighing the two. I decided to do the customer satisfaction hedge fund, which was the start of what became exponential ETFs. So we, we launched uh, the ACSI ETF, which is still trading. And then we launched a reverse cap ETF. And then um, what we found was we were quite good at the portfolio management side of the business, more so than distribution side. So we started outsourcing our abilities to manage ETFs as ETF sub-advisor. And we did that for a while. Um, with some success, we sold the company to Title Financial Group a couple of years ago. And um, now I'm back at it with another ETF venture. I figured uh, I didn't get kicked in the teeth enough the first time around. So uh, I'm back for more, back for more abuse. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. And a truly inspirational story how you made those major changes after a big health scare. But we're all happy that you made it uh, through to the other side. And you have this new venture um, that we're going to get into. Prior to that, ETFs, you've been in them for a long time, and you're now just kicking off another round of it. You've done multiple rounds of, of different ETF concepts, product concepts. What 
specifically attracts you to this investor tool? What makes it a great tool for investors specifically? The, the promise of ETFs, the beauty of ETFs is uh, something Eric Balchunas at Bloomberg refers to as ETFs being the Silicon Valley of finance. Right. And, you know, we talk about the, you know, everyone loves to use the buzzword, the democratization of this or that. And I think when it comes to ETFs, there's a lot of truth to it. You know, anybody, it's not free to launch these things. It's not that easy to launch them, but it's not an insurmountable amount of capital or uh, effort to get them done. So, you know, typically you're talking about a quarter million dollars a year in operational cost, you know, maybe 15 basis points, but you can get one of these ETF launched if you have a good idea and you have some, you know, some ways to distribute it, at least to a minimum level or some seed capital. And, you know, the idea that, that you can come up with a more clever twist on what people are doing now, or you can come up with an asset class that people aren't currently investing in that they should be make it available. And then in, you know, it doesn't, doesn't always happen. doesn't usually happen, but it can happen. You can hit scale in an ETF, the likes of which you can't in other vehicles. So, you know, for example, hedge funds are far more profitable. Even mutual funds are more profitable, but it's harder to reach scale because they're sold on a, you know, in a hand-to-hand -hand combat way. They're sold mm -hmm. kind of as one-offs. Whereas ETFs, once you, once you clear, you know, liquidity hurdles, which are very difficult to do for a number of reasons we can get into. But if you do clear those liquidity hurdles, because so many people are allocating now by, you know, model portfolios or more broadly, you have these centralized home offices. If you can get something that, that catches on in those markets, you can you can create something that can reach incredible scale. So it's it's you know the promise of it is very tempting, right? For every you know for every Kathy Wood, there's a number of active you know managers in the high beta space or whatever that 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 don't catch on, right? Mm -hmm. But enough catch on that it's the promise of hey, I've got this great idea. I think if I can get the investment world to see it the way I see it that I can have this, you know, permanent annuity stream of revenue. And, and it, it's very tempting. It's very interesting. So, you know, I, I don't know. There, there are times I look over at, you know, some of the other vehicles, or some of the other strategies people are using to distribute different investment theses. And I get, you know, pretty envious because the amount of capital you need to raise into an ETF in order to make it just profitable on its own, let alone to make any money on these things, is quite high. There is a very high, they work at scale, basically. They, they don't work unless you get them to scale and getting them to scale is not easy and it's, it's getting harder and harder because a lot of the centralized you know wirehouses and different distribution avenues are closing those gates they're looking for you know hidden kind of ways where they can profit off the relationship that are still allowed and there's a lot of shady things going on there so <laughs> it's not quite a meritocracy the way you know the way it's the way it was or the way it's advertised to be but it is more of a meritocracy i believe than the other areas of finance so you know, that's that's the temptation. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And from an asset manager's perspective, what, what are some of those key considerations that, that you think they should be looking at when they're looking to launch a strat? They have a strategy. They're looking at an ETF structure versus 
closed end fund versus a, versus a traditional hedge fund or things of that nature, many other different structures. What what would some of those key considerations be for some of our audience? The key is accessibility. So you know, if a strategy is not yet available in an ETF, it's a little bit hard to get um, to get access to. All of a sudden, you can put it in the ticker and buy it through an ETF. It becomes very simple. And a lot of ETFs that have exploded in popularity have done so for that reason. Like the key example would be GLD. It's not like it's hard to buy gold, right? You could buy gold at the jewelry store. At the time, you could buy. There were different derivative instruments. But for most investors who just want to have one portfolio in their equity account, where they have all their holdings, it becomes very simple that way. All of a sudden, GLD comes along, and now it's you know it's, it's a juggernaut. And there are different strategies that are you know more complex. They're they're hard to get to. They're hard to implement. You know, increasingly, we're seeing other competing tools that also provide that access. And I think some of them are, are fantastic. I think direct indexing is very appropriate in certain instances. But the key thing with the ETF, I mean, people will talk about the tax efficiency. That's true. There are some, usually, depending on the fund, usually there are some cost efficiencies. It is a very consumer-friendly structure. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the thing that is really tempting for the sell side, for the asset manager, is that you can make something very accessible with a catchy, memorable ticker, trading desk will use it, and it can become it can become uh, ubiquitous with you know that strategy and and really own a strategy. Now, Phil, you mentioned a relatively controversial figure, Kathy Wood of uh, Ark Invest, who has a number of these innovation ETFs that are very popular with investors, and you know the numbers are the numbers uh, in terms of performance uh, hasn't been. Awesome lately, but I was interested in your opinion because that firm has been tremendously successful in terms of growing uh, to significant scale. What do you think are some of the keys to success that she has had uh, in the wind behind her sales? So, you know, look, it, it, it's, there's a lot of ways that you can answer this. There's a lot of different angles, right? Was her success from a performance standpoint a function of, you know, high beta of, you know, the a lot of tailwinds of, of you know, some tech trends, but a lot of you know, friendly Fed environment and different <laughs> things kind of lining up at the same time. Yeah, no, there's no question. There's no doubt. But I am also a fan of, of hers and of the firms and what they've accomplished for a number of other reasons that are more kind of specific to our industry. I know you're in the ETF industry as well. And, you know, for, for one thing, I think she has tremendous conviction in what she believes. I think she truly believes in the uh, innovative capabilities of the companies that they invest in. And she's not a faker. I don't think she's a charlatan. I think she truly believes in it. And over the long term, you know, maybe uh, she'll be quite vindicated by the success of some of these companies. But what what I think is we've gotten, as an industry, we've gotten very, very bland, right? Mm. And there's this massive wave and push towards index investing. When I say index investing, of course, I mean passive market cap weighted indexing. Um, you know, smart beta is kind of you know, ebbs and flows based on, you know, how market cap weight is essentially the, the counter to all those strategies, right? How that's doing. We haven't been in a value cycle for a long time. And, you know, a lot of the very large asset managers have, I don't know if I'd say go as far as say they have closet indexing strategies, but you look at their strategies and they're just not that, they're not that bold, right? right? And if you look at the top holdings of a lot of the large active funds, you see the same, you know, the same top hole. Maybe slightly they tweak the weights. Maybe they, you know, they don't like J and J or they don't like Google. But they basically have. You look at the top ten of a passive cap weighted fund, and you look at the top top ten of any of the large mutual funds. You're not going to. They're they're going to look the same, mm-hmm. right? Just from a smell test, from a, from a high level. And here comes somebody who has their own thesis and truly believes in it and is investing in a very unique, differentiated way. And 
as commercial success, commercial success. So for forgetting about the investment success or not or whatever, but just commercial success as an independent coming up woman and a small team initially coming up against, you know, these gigantic asset management companies. And to me, it, it, it says a few things. It says that active management is not dead. It says that independence and, and, you know, startups can succeed against these big asset managers. And it says that what you really need more than anything to succeed, yeah, you need performance, you need the right environment, but if you wait long enough, that environment will come. Mm-hmm. So what you really need is conviction and differentiation. And those are things that I really respect and that I don't think we see enough of. So kind of a long-winded, complicated answer, but but I have tremendous regard and respect for what they've accomplished. No, and that's a really good point in terms of the, the commercial. She's had a ton of commercial success, and it's it's through structural, some structural changes to how we view ETFs. And so with that in mind, you already in your career, you've been a big part of some of these structural changes to ETFs. You mentioned before non-transparent ETFs, there's now active ETFs, it's not just passive. Moving forward, what are some of the innovations and changes within the ETF structure that, that you would like to see over, say, the next 10 years? I think we're seeing them now. I think a lot of these derivative strategies are very interesting to me. Um, I think, you know, the traditional 60-40 is, you know, famously, you know, in a, in a bear market, all correlation spike and et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of people are rethinking some of those assumptions. And as they do, you know, different frameworks for asset allocation are popping up. And a lot of them, you know, rely on, you know, rather than rely on diversification or rely on fixed income for downside protection, they have more uh, direct, you know, uh, option strategies to achieve that or have structured, you know, structured outcomes and different things like that. I think a lot of those strategies are very, very interesting. Um, I'm a big fan of what Simplify is doing. I'm a big fan of the Black Swan Fund and, and that concept that uh, Amplify has out. Um, th- there's a number of these strategies that I like quite a bit. So I think, you know, for a long time, the use of derivatives in ETFs was um, very difficult to do. You had to go through this 19 before process on a product by product basis with the SEC. Uh, recently, they've kind of loosened some of those restrictions and allowed some of these different strategies to come. And I think it's really interesting. I think it's going to allow more creativity by issuers, you know, by quants. And I think, you know, look, the way we invest in 20 years is probably not going to be the way we invest today. So I think, you know, having a regulatory framework that allows issuers to stay in the forefront of, you know, new innovations is really critical. And we're seeing that now. This podcast is brought to you by Accelerate, one of Canada's leading alternative investment solution providers. Do you want to hedge your investment portfolio and protect your nest egg from significant drawdowns? Look no further than the Accelerate Absolute Return Hedge Fund, a long-short equity ETF that trades under the ticker symbol HEDGE, H-D-G-E, on the TSX. HEDGE, your uncorrelated portfolio diversifier. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Yeah, it's great to see new innovations become accessible to investors. And I was just reading uh, Howard Marks's memo over the weekend, and he was speaking about starting out his career in high yield bonds, junk bonds. And when they first got created, uh, late kind of late seventies, that nearly all investors weren't allowed to touch them because they're too speculative. Too speculative. They're like, what? A non-investment grade bond? We can't touch that. And now you look. There's all sorts of high yield bond ETFs, junk bond, like basically everyone has junk bonds in a diversified portfolio. So it's a great just to see all these innovations and new asset classes come to the forefront and become accessible, low cost, easy to use, etc. Now, in terms of what you're up to right now at Armada ETF Advisors, 
residential real estate. Can you tell us the bull case for that asset class? Yeah, and, and you know, it's not, you know, we're, we're talking about these like, you know, complex, you know, super advanced ideas. This one's the opposite. This one is, you know, really about dialing it down and, and keeping it simple. I think a lot of people in our industry think of a REIT as an afterthought and a REIT is a REIT. Like, what's the difference, right? And what what's happened is over the last really two things. One is the REIT structure. There's no like REIT, like, you know, like the, the thing, the unifying unifying description of anything that's a REIT is just the structure of REIT, which is basically a tax treatment. It's not, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be in real estate. And you have all these different types of REITs now. You have, you know, cell towers, storage facilities, student housing, all these different things, and they're all called REITs. And what's interesting to me, what, what really hooked me on this project was looking at the correlation matrix of the subsectors within the REITs and seeing that they were really quite low, lower, in fact, than you have as the correlations between you know, your traditional, you know, growth value or large cap, small cap, there's more diversification benefits or opportunities for, for trading within the REIT sector. And I, I had not been aware of that. I was one of those people. I just assumed, you know, REIT's a REIT. So, you know, we're looking at, I'm looking at the REIT industry and saying, wow, there's really some opportunity here. Well, two things. One is, what do I want to own in this macro environment going forward? And, you know, obviously in a post-COVID world, you don't necessarily want to own office buildings. You know, you might not want right. to own, uh, malls and, and you know we're, we're kind of going through the the cap weighted the vnq and, and the different cap weighted uh re etfs and there's a lot here that i probably don't want to own right so there's real opportunity here for alpha and we'll, we'll, what do you want to do do we want to you know create a, a multi-factor model do we want to create a rotational model like what do we want to do and at the end of the day what we saw was these residential rates who basically investing in the the rental income that comes with them and you know when you look at the supply demand imbalance in housing here in the U.S., you look at the demographic trends, you look at the fact that in a rising rates environment, it's harder for new builders to finance new construction, but the existing homes are already there. So the rental income, even in a downturn in real estate, tends to be a lot more stable than, let's say, you know, home prices or different things. So if, if I were to put my money to work in the REIT space, where do I want to put it? You know, it's pretty clear to me and, and, and my founders that we want to keep it in residential REITs. That's the good stuff. That's where you want to be. And um, in fact, we built this for, you know, for the chairman of our company to, for him personally to put his money. He wanted to put, you know, a million bucks into residential REITs and there was no ETF to do so. So, you know, we built this fund. We think it's, uh, it makes a lot of sense for this macro environment. And that's, you know, that's it. This is a pure play on residential REITs. I believe I heard a stat. Someone said that residential real estate is the largest asset class in the world thought that was super interesting, just a massive market there. And I found it quite shocking that there wasn't previously an ETF dedicated to that. So good on you for recognizing that opportunity. Now, with respect to the, the broad REIT sector, it's been a bit of controversy there lately. And you really touched on it in a recent Twitter thread that uh, I thought really nailed the issue. So what happened was uh, the largest private REIT uh, showing exceptional performance year-to-date up 9.3% when a lot of its peers uh, on the public side were down 20, 30, even uh, you know, 40%. And so some mismatch there, then run into some liquidity issues. Can you break down that situation for us and what's happening on the private REIT space versus the public? Yeah, and I was just saying, I said two things. I think I said to talk about the market cap weighted. The other you know, big way that people have been getting access to this asset class lately is in these private refunds. So there's this Blackstone refund, there's Starwood, there, there's a number over the last three years, over a hundred billion dollars has flown into this wow. one asset class. And, 
it's it's a scary thing when you think about because the largest buyers of commercial real estate, by far the largest buyer has been Blackstone through this B-Read fund over the last couple of years. And we're in an environment now, and I'll kind of break down and, and get to here, but we're in an environment now where those largest buyers have become sell, not only sellers, but you know, possibly forced sellers. Right. So, you know, what's happened is you've got these non-traded REITs, which are basically just the same as REITs, except they don't trade on the exchange. So you don't get the benefit of you know, transparency, daily mark to market for for the pricing, which you know, to me is a benefit, but to a lot of people, it could be uh, perceived as the opposite because, you know, what you have is a smoothing effect, which, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with, but in all private markets where you have, um, you know, less frequent uh, marks on the value of the underlying asset, then, you know, you could be, depending on how you calculate it, you could be kind of deceived into thinking that it's less liquid because you look at it less often, right? Um, But it's not only the smoothing effect, it's not only the fact that the marks are, are come in, you know, quarterly, it's, they're all based off these appraisal systems, which are even slower. So there's there's the appraisals. You have human appraisal, and the appraisers, I'm sure, are very good at what they do. However, they only come in periodically, and appraisers in general are less likely to you know to be more volatile in their uh, assessment. You know, based on like macro you know trends or based on publicly traded comps. When the market turns quickly, which is what happened, the market went you know from you know wildly bullish and peak valuations to something else. Uh, it takes a while for those appraisals to catch up, right? Because you only do them once a year on, on a property-by-property basis. So over time, over the course of a year, they all kind of catch up to the new environment after a turn. But it takes a long time. So you have this massive Blackstone refund and, and Starwood. There are others too. But let's just let's talk about the Blackstone. You have this massive refund, which is still calculating their NAVs off of these lagging indicators, off of these lagging appraisals. So you're basically looking at it as if the value of the assets held by this fund are six months old when the market has dropped. Now, in that time period, in those six months, publicly traded REITs have dropped by like 15%, by a significant amount. So there's a huge a huge divergence there. Now, in the past, there's been a divergence between public and private REITs, right? They have diverged, um, never to this extent, but every time they've diverged, over time they have converged, right? They kind of come back together over time, which stands to reason. You could say that Blackstone is really good at picking great properties. And I think they are, by the way, I I think they do a very good job of that. But you could say that they're so good at it that they're going to outperform the public REITs. Okay, fine. Maybe I'll give you that. How much can they outperform by and for how long? And can that compound and stay and build forever? It's not possible for a 15% gap. The properties aren't that much better. And you can normalize your comps based on you know, property type and geography and a number of different factors to give you, you know, an apples to apples comparison. So if you want to grant them, we can get into the fees later, but basically they have to overcome a hurdle just on the fee difference of over 3%. They have to be that much better than than the baseline and the market. And then you want to say that they're even better than that and the public reefs. Okay, I'll grant you maybe a couple percentage points because I'm nice because they seem so smart and everything. But once you start talking about 15, 20, 25% divergence between the public and the private REITs, you know that it's going to it's gonna true up. Now, it could true up, theoretically, it could true up by, you know, the public REITs, you know, rebounding and coming up to meet the privates, or it could be something in between, or it could be uh, the privates coming back down to earth. Now, like we see in a lot of close-in funds, like we're seeing now with GBTC, just because a private fund isn't being marked at a NAV that is, you know, congruent with the publicly traded comps, it doesn't mean it has to tomorrow. There's no mechanism for it to true up. There's no, you know, arbitrage mechanism or anything that will force it to come back to earth, except for one, except if they have to start selling properties in the real world, 
for real dollars from real buyers, well, they're only going to get what they're going to get. And whatever the appraiser said a year ago about this property has no relevance of their ability to find liquidity today. Now that, like I said, the largest buyer in this market has become a seller, right? And the real estate markets are generally frozen. It's not a good time to be selling large commercial real estate. If they have to sell, then you know the NAVs are going to reflect what they were able to get in the market, not what they think they're worth. So there's a big risk here. Now, I've got a caveat this, right? Because they do have a lot of liquidity. They've got CMBS on the books. They've got credit lines. They have ways to get liquidity. And, you know, what we think happened here, we've been watching this situation very closely. You know, they they have in their perspectives, they have a right to gate and slow down these redemptions. They are claiming they got a lot of redemption requests from you know, some centralized Asian sources and it may or may not be true. I think they underestimated the fact that by getting the fund, which in, you know, in their words, which is true, they had a right to do, which I think they saw as a temporary thing to kind of wait get some more inflows that can offset the redemptions or to kind of buy a little time. I think they underestimated the panic that that would cause, that gating the fund would cause. And the fact that if I need liquidity on this thing and I can only get 5% out a quarter, well, now all of a sudden I have to put in a bigger uh, redemption request for my clients. If they need liquidity, let's say next year or the year after, you ha- it, it, they have potentially caused their own run on the bank with their own hubris that they can gate the fund and not cause a panic. So even though they had plenty of liquidity, probably enough liquidity to meet whatever redemptions they had last quarter, the question is, did they cause a big rush for more redemptions? And are they going to be able to cover that without having to sell properties? And again, selling properties, I mean, we're not talking about you know, an FTX situation. We're not talking about them you know, defaulting on, I mean, you know, all, all the shares in the fund are represented by the properties that are owned. The problem with them having to sell properties in order to get liquidity is the price that they're going to get on the properties is not even going to be close, not even close to what they're marked at as now. So the investors are going to have to take a huge write down if that happens. So to provide some additional context to that, you provided a lot of details and insights there. A couple of terms, so gating, what they're doing there, the, the private REITs tend to be what they call semi-liquid. So they allow a portion to be redeemed each quarter, each month. And gating means uh, saying no mas to redemptions. They've had too many and they can't honor those uh, like investors want. And obviously gating causes issues because it sort of sets off the alarm bells for other investors. Well, uh, it's like shouting fire in a crowded movie theater. Everyone wants out at the same time. Now, Phil, I was wondering, with respect to this dynamic, Say you're an investor who owns a private REIT right now. Like, what are the major risks and, and what should they do? I mean, the major risk is being able to get liquidity when you need it. And again, even if this issue um, from Black, let, let's say it's the Blackstone Fund, even if you think it's a temporary issue, if there is a big rush to the exits and you have to get in line behind everyone else, that line is going to get longer and longer, potentially. And, you know, I, I talked a little bit about this in the thread, but there's this idea of crowding, this idea that, you know, it's similar to the Kathy Wood thing. When when performance is really strong in an asset, you see more people chase that performance. It's just human nature. It's how it is. And, you know, the, the performance has been really, really good in this fund. It's been really good with very low, very low volatility. And a lot of people have rushed in for that. And if the performance turns and the performance gets worse because they have to write down the value of these assets, because they have to sell them, because they have to meet the redemption request, well, guess what? That too, just like the run on the bank, the afraid, you know people afraid that they can't get out, turn in performance will also cause an increasing run on the bank. So all of this, it's like it's the scenario that plays out 
on the way up and then on the way down where you know people rush in the flows drive performance right if people are buying something through a fund intermediary or direct if everyone's buying something that itself pushes up the price and on the way out the exact opposite happens so you have this um possible scenario where the whole thing feeds off each other and it creates a cycle where you know more redemptions create more write downs create more redemptions uh, and it gets harder and harder to get your money out and you have to wait longer and longer to get it out and while you're waiting to get your money out you're getting you know write downs and it's you know it's not we're not, I'm not saying that this will happen I'm saying that this could happen I think it's enough of a risk that investors should be cognizant of it if your money's in there you have the only thing you can do right now is get in the queue to get it out um, if you can get it out or if you're allocating new capital, I would suggest that the public REITs the valuations are significantly better without the same issues. And you know, one of the things I talked about also is the the liquidity, you know, liquidity premium, where like, you know, the idea historically is if something is, you know, you have to accept a diminishing return to have more liquidity, or you have to get a better return in your expectations for less liquidity because liquidity is valuable. And it's all been turned on its head lately in the markets where people feel like, well, anyone could buy an ETF, anyone could buy a liquid asset. There's nothing special about that. But if I want something really special for my clients, I have to get something illiquid and I'll pay a premium for that, right? So, you know, if I can get into a venture fund or if I can get into a private equity fund or these private REITs, that because there's an air of exclusivity to them, it, it makes it seem more valuable and they charge more fees. So the less liquid it is, the higher the fees are, which is totally backwards, totally backwards. And I think we're going to see now a return to common sense where people are willing to you know, pay more for liquidity. But here you get to pay less for liquidity because you get more liquidity and you get better valuations in the publics right now at this point. That could change, but that's what it looks like today. Yeah, it's very interesting. You noted the valuation, the dichotomy between valuations of the private REITs, which have remained elevated. They've basically taken no write-downs, haven't adjusted the appraisals at all for clearly rising cap rates, declining multiples amidst uh, significantly higher interest rates. Obviously, interest rates drive real estate valuations uh, for the most part, and also a recessionary environment as well, uh, and created this potential bank run scenario that you detailed. The other one um, that we can extend further with respect to the price differential is this quasi-arbitrage opportunity where you can basically, if you can get the liquidity from a private REIT at 100 cents on the dollar, go into the public market at 70 cents on the dollars, the most rational thing an investor could do, right? Because there's such a better deal in public markets. And ultimately, when you think of what drives the return, that's valuation. So if you're if you're buying private REIT at say, you know, 20 times FFO or funds flow, and you can get it in the public markets at 15, it's like, where do you think you're going to find the higher returns? Yeah, I, w- I would say it is an arbitrage if you can get liquidity at the privates. Oh. I mean, I can tell you, even before they gated the fund, before everyone was talking about this, we looked into uh, swap exposure on some of these private funds and no mas, nobody was, <laughs> nobody was making that offer. But uh, you know, if you can get that, then that I, you know, I believe it is and not perfect art, but I think it's pretty good art. Yeah, if, if only you could short them and create a pair trading opportunity. Unfortunately, you can't. And at this point, it's really tough to discern why anyone would be using private REITs. I know they typically say, oh, these things are, are uh, sold, not bought. And then there's a whole, I believe Cliff Asnitz refers to it as volatility laundering. You mentioned return smoothing, which in a volatile market environment 
certainly helps to be oblivious to the underlying volatility and risks. But are there any reasons why you think people should be in private REITs? Or are you pretty focused on public REIT exposure being the better way to play it? Well, I think, unfortunately, the, you know, the, the best selling point on these were, was the low volatility. And it's a great story. These are you know, tangible, hard, they're, they're real properties. They exist. Quality properties, like I said, they do a very good job. We think at, at, at choosing and, and managing the properties. And if you look at the volatility and you compare it to you know, public options, it looks, it looks amazing. And you know, what's really sad about that, the reason why I say it's sad is because the, the risk return characteristic of this thing, you know, because it's considered very low volatility based on historicals, attracts an investor that does not have a lot of risk tolerance. Right. right? So you're talking about retirees and widows and orphans, proverbial widows and orphans. <laughs> but specifically, this fund got modeled in for investors who are the least risk tolerant. And we think, you know, we're looking at a 15 to 20%, you know, uh, drawdown in NAVs, or at least convergence to the publicly traded, that's imminent, that'll happen over the next year. You know, specifically, it's going to hit these investors that are least inclined to uh, to take on that kind of risk. It's, it's really unfortunate. It's it's really, it's really sad. But yeah, they have been, you know, the the, the brokers have been uh, incentivized to, to move this thing. There's a very high selling fee associated with it. Um, it's high fee in general. But, you know, it's got a very good brand. And, and I think the, the business case for real estate is strong generally. And, um, you know, there are definitely reasons to buy it. It's just unfortunate that it's been sold, not bought, and sold, you know, to investors with a pretty low risk appetite. And as we approach the holiday season, the analogy that I like to use for private funds, private REITs, is that of the turkey. And if you look at the, the graph of the life of the turkey, it's all smooth sailing. These private funds typically only show, you know, positive performance month after month after month, uh, never any sort of drawdown. <laughs> and comes uh, Christmas Eve and then there's a massive drawdown. And uh, who knows, that could be coming to these private REITs. As you indicated, the valuations certainly warrant some sort of adjustment there. I guess we'll watch that and, and keep, keep our eyes open for that monitor that situation. Now, outside of real estate, Phil, um, just prior to wrapping things up here, what is your top investment theme or idea? I like uranium miners. I think, uh, you know, from a macro standpoint, I think a lot of people, a lot of, you know, governments and, and you know, the, the idea that uh, nuclear power is, is more efficient and probably more uh, environmentally friendly than people had given it credit. I think that idea is kind of permeating and uh, we're going to see more power plants, nuclear plants built. Um, and that's going to help uranium miners. Um, I'll, I'll go with that one. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because uh, you look at all the regulations coming against coal power production, uh, natural gas even, uh, this whole energy transition. And there was a big news story on fusion the other day saying, oh, we're going to have endless clean power uh, without emissions. But a lot of those features are available uh, available in nuclear power from uranium today. There's just this obvious negative sentiment, this negative bias against it, given what happened decades and decades ago. Uh, so that would be great to see. I know there's a lot of your junior uranium miner stocks that tend to be a bit uh, sketchy, I'd say as well, but um, definitely a huge growth area. In any event, Phil, thanks for coming on the show. Anything else before we wrap things up? Yeah, this is great. Thank you, guys. And uh, happy holidays and New Year. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks for coming. And hopefully it warms up there in Detroit. Wish you all the best. All right. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.